I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians conquer rebellious propagandists. The podcast where history sets sail to truly smash its enemies and neighbours. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with my good friend and over-romanticised rebel, Kyle Glover. Hello. And we are Tudor-bound today to talk about an often overlooked and often misunderstood conflict of the Tudor period over in Ireland. And to take us across the Irish Sea to invade the Emerald Isle, we are joined by Heritage Consultant and Collections Officer at the Northern Ireland War Memorial, Jim O'Neill. Jim. Welcome to History Rage. Oh, Kyle, it's great to be here. Let's get our rage on. Feeling angry? angry? Only slightly, but we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. Okay, I can feel it building up. Well, before we start then, can you tell us, because I really have only known you via Twitter uh, and email exchange the first time we tried to get this going, uh, but could you get us a bit of about your background, your work, and kind of how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Okay, background is, I'm one of those kids that made a mess of his A-levels, catastrophically made a mess of them, and ended up working uh, casual in the civil service. But that part of the civil service was, sort of, was archaeology in Belfast, and I've been working there for years and years and years. Uh, 16 years, actually, put in there, and my good wife, while I was there, says, why don't you do a degree while you're here? So when one of those ones decided to rehabilitate himself in his 30s. And while I was doing that, we were working on... The Battlefield Survey, this archaeology survey in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were looking at all the different battlefields and medieval and all the rest of that. And we decided to do a uh, uh, metal detecting survey at the site of the Battle of Yellow Ford, which was a big battle in 1598. And the more we started to look at it, the more I started to went, you know, there's something not right about this. This just does something add up. What sort of wrong with me? Because years and years and years ago, uh, my history teacher in third year, was teaching a wee bit about the Nine Years' War, and it sort of came across as a bit bollocks as well. There was just something that wasn't adding up with the current history. So I was, as, as I was uh, graduating um, undergrad and went to my student, went to my uh, head of school and went, why is this not done? And he said, well, why don't you do something about it? 
go write the history. Ooh, right. sound advice. Challenge accepted. Uh, yeah. And so I went off and I said, okay, Queens, now that you've given me an undergrad, how's about a PhD? And says, well, you know, you got to work for it. And I went, ah, fair enough. And so we started their PhD program looking just at the Nine Years' War. Like, imagine that. For three to four years, just looking at the Nine Years' War. Just largely looking at the military aspects of the Nine Years' War. Uh, to be fair, I've seen more specific PhDs that only one person would be interested in. To be fair, actually, it was a wide open net. No, you went in and like, okay, mm. they've got the, the Confederate Wars, grand. You've got the William Wright Wars, grand. Where's the book on the Nine Years' War? There actually wasn't one. It just didn't exist. There was no single book that went, the big book of the Nine Years' War. So, as uh, my supervisor said, we'll go write it. And so they let me go write it. Um, and then I got, uh, when it was all done, and I felt all well, quite happy with myself. They said, well, well you're not done now. you got to turn that into a book. And so, uh, working with um, uh, University College Cork and Harm Morgan down there, who saw me through two years of postdoc and four courts press, we turned it into a book, um, which hopefully has given a whole new slant on how people look at mm. the Nine Years' War and basically the Elizabethan reign at the closing stages of uh, uh, the, the 16th century in Ireland. And then sort of going from Queen's University and, and, and academia, you've now jumped over to being the collections officer for the Northern Ireland War Memorial. How did that come about? Would you believe that? I'm uh, a 16th century historian and ends up working with World War II. Um well, I'd sort of worked with, uh, there was a thing years ago called the Defence of Britain Project, but you couldn't call that in Northern Ireland, so it was the Defence Heritage Project. Uh, and I'd done a lot of work with the pillboxes and airfields and all the rest of that. And then very recently, the environment, uh, the Historic Environment Division got me in to do two and a half years of survey in Northern Ireland, which was looking at every pillbox and radar site. and oh, Concrete runway. bunker porn. No, don't concrete. Oh, don't get me started with bricks and concrete. It's a different talk altogether. Um, um, after two years of that, and then uh, the people in Northern Ireland War Memorial said, well, we'll have a bit of that. And here I am now, sort of straddling this weird precipice between the 16th century and all the terrible things that happened there and the archaeology of the 20th century. Yeah. It's pretty cool, actually, that you get to do that for a living. Yeah, so... So let's now that we get now that we've calmed you down a bit and got you thinking about the positive things in your life. Let's uh, <laughs> let, let's kick things up again. So you've listened to a few episodes. You know what history rage is about. Uh, and I saw when you actually gave me this rage in the email. It's like, whoa, that's going to be fun. So Jim, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our baying mob of history rages what you wish people would just stop believing? Okay. See if there's one more person comes up to me and says that the Irish war at the end of the 16th century was a guerrilla war that they could never win. They're going to get one massive boot in the hole. <laughs> That's my rage. That's my rage. There's the quote of the episode there, right there. And it's all, it's downhill or uphill, depending on which way you want it from here. I'm sick and bloody tired of it. It's just, do you see that bit with Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, which says, say that one more time. Just say guerrilla war one more time, and they're just. <laughs> There's people, and you can. I've actually had it where you've I've talked to academics and explained in detail that I'm not making this up, and here's the reasons why. And they go, uh huh, uh huh. And I had one guy one time, then two seconds later, turned around to someone else and goes, ah, uh-huh, it was a guerrilla war. Jesus Christ, I could have clubbed them. I'll tell you, <laughs> there'll be violence done. Right. Okay. 
We lit that blue touch paper. Do not go back to gym <laughs> once he's been lit. Yeah. Okay, so let's expand on this then a bit. Because if there are two areas that are outside my expertise, then number one is Tudors and number two is Ireland. And so that's right up at the top there. See, I, and I know we've got a lot of World War One, World War Two types out there and things like that. So can you give us a beginner's guide to the Tudor conquest of Ireland, the Nine Years' War, and who is undertaking it, what starts it, and why it happens? Okay, now, England, and during the whole 16th century, its relationship with Ireland hasn't been pretty. And Henry VIII has decided that, since he's made it a kingdom, uh, he's going to go through this thing called surrender and regrant, where the Irish lords have to surrender their land to him, and then he regrants them with English titles. Now, this isn't working out too well, because it sort of contradicts what Irish law says, that uh, Irish law and lordships isn't held on a hereditary title that's held mm-hmm. under Breton law, which is entirely different from primogeniture. And as the century goes on, and there's more and more resistance, the violence starts to ramp up. You have much more massacres. You have a much more recourse to martial law. Basically, the Irish strangely don't feel like swapping Irish law for English law. And as the century goes on, this gets worse. And then you have characters such as Hugh O'Neill come into the mix. I want to say Hugh O'Neill. Hugh O'Neill initially doesn't seem like a major character in Irish politics. He's actually a loser Mm. in the dynastic uh, disputes of the mid-century. His father is killed uh, in a dynastic dispute. Then his brother is killed. And then the English go, right, I think we'll just take him offside here when he's about 9 or 10 and send him down to the Pale, which is like the English area around Dublin. And he's brought up in an English family. So he wrote, grows up. Then he goes back to the north again uh, about 20 years later, uh, 10, 15 years later. And is made Baron of Dungannon. And so the English decide he's our man. He'll get the job done for us and we'll back him against these unhelpful Irish lords. Unfortunately, they were back in the wrong one because as he establishes himself and then becomes the Earl of Tyrone, the English advances on their essentially their privileges their noble privileges gets worse they get to see uh, by the 1580s and the early 1590s you see the breakup of lordships in connaught you see the breakup of the lordships in monaghan and they're seeing also there's an incredibly corrupt lord deputy called william mm-hmm. fitzwindham uh, who's on the make and he's got all these officers with him that are also on the make at the irish expense and they start to see this pattern established that this is what they do. They break up the lordships. The chief gets, or the the lord uh, gets executed, and then it's basically made much more easier to uh, control. Oddly, they decide they don't want this to happen, um, and they're lucky enough that that in itself wouldn't have done it. But see all this bit where yeah. you have him saying, "1588 Armada, uh, Elizabeth first beat Armada. What a success! What a load of bollocks!" Because those Spanish sailors end up landing on the west coast of Ireland. That when they're okay, a lot of them get killed, but once some that are saved, including Tyrone, who takes eight of them to Dungannon, his capital, yeah. they foster these political links between Spain, which under Philip II is the preeminent military uh, power in Europe, Western Europe. Uh, and so all of a sudden, there's a dialogue, there's politics going on here, there's connections between the Irish lords, and then. You also, within that comes 
a moment when they were, the Irish said, we're not going to take this and we're, we're going to actually resist, that, that there, there's no more ground to be given. Uh, and so Tyrone starts the war. That's what they always say. Sometimes we get people saying, oh, the English started this war. Actually, the English didn't start this war. <laughs> it was <actually laughs> the Irish guard the first shot. But it just shows you that by that stage, uh, Tyrone had created a uh, uh, confederation between other yeah. lords, there's the O'Donnells, that didn't really happen before. And it put them in a position where they thought, you know, we just could win this with a bit of Spanish help. We could win. Mm. Uh, and, that, and that's where it kicks off in 1593. So you mentioned a little early on there the, the, this whole idea of coming under English law and particularly the land laws that are not primogeniture. Um, could you just sort of explain the difference between, you know, uh, our land laws, us being sitting over here in England, and your land laws at the time? Well, you have the titles. Um uh, we passed down from one lord in English law. We have an earl, and then it passed to his son, and then it passed to his son, and that's how land titles passed down. Yeah. In Irish law, the Breton law, it is actually the leaders are elected. So, the, the under the lordship, uh, say you had where O'Neill was the O'Neill who's in charge of all the O'Neill land, but then whenever he dies, he has a, has the elected Tanister which isn't necessarily his son. It's just part mm-hmm. of the broader kin group. And then they are elected by the what's called the Derb Finna, which is this extended family. So it's not really his land to begin with. It's not his to hand over. And so if you start transferring that into English systems, all of a sudden the people who should be electing the mm-hmm. next lord are actually tenants, are yeah. subject to... So this isn't working, and it's not working for the lesser lords. It's not working for... It's, it's curbing the power... Uh, yeah. of even the lords that are in charge. And so normally there's little they can do about it, but where Tyrone is stronger, he sees those connections between Spain. He creates these uh, alliances where there wasn't before. And under this pressure and under the fact that uh, Fitzwilliam is so corrupt, there is no dealing, they, they, there's no uh, uh, goodwill at all because deals and word and oaths are broken left, right and centre. And so in that moment, uh, Tyrone and his alliances go, uh, and the people he's allied to go, right, we can win this. We can. And Tyrone isn't doing, he's not a nationalist hero. He's not, I do this so that all Ireland be free. What he wants is he's like any noble, any aristocrat. He wants his power consolidated. What he realizes to do that, mm-hmm. for him to be free of English power, everyone has to be free of English power. And so he sets the sights so much higher. He wants to eject. English power out of Ireland. And it's not to get rid of um, yeah. uh, sovereigns. He just wants to swap sovereign. He actually goes to Philip II and goes, here, you can help be sovereign of Ireland, or you can appoint one, say Archduke Albert. He doesn't but he doesn't want to be king. He just wants to be lord of his own lands, free of interference. And he would see Spain as pretty far away. Yeah, so if this is, if the Nine Years' War isn't a peasant guerrilla warfare, um, what what are we talking about here? Who actually makes up the Irish military response, and how is that uh, brought to bear against the English? Oh, this is the good bit, you see. Tyrone is different from the rest, as in that he changes what's been before. Before mm. you had the Cairn, which is sort of like these lightly armed footmen with spears and swords and shields and no armour, and then the heavily armed gallowglass with the big axes and the chain, and all male and 
all, all very traditional and all very easily beatable when you've got guns and pikes. <laughs> Tyrone changes it several different ways. For one, uh, unlike in England, there's no obligation to fight for the churls. The churls would be the equivalent of the peasants in England, uh, but they're not peasants here because there is no feudalism on Burhan Island. Only the people under the, the, the lesser lords and the people, the landed people in, under the lordship have an obligation to fight. But the vast majority of people don't. Tyrone does away with that. But what he does is he offers the churls an opportunity to sign up. These aren't compressed men. These are all volunteers mm. that are paid. Uh, I suppose if any soldier that's paid, they're all mercenaries. But while he has, while the English think he's loyal, he he's actually allowed to keep 600 troops under pay to do the crown's will. But what he does is he cycles people through these training programs so that by the time he decides he wants to jump in with both feet and start a bit of a wee bit of war, he has almost 6,000 trained troops. Clever. He makes shooting actually an art uh, and a pastime. Like guns, I, I couldn't believe it. One time someone sat down and said, to me, really, did the Irish have guns? And I was like, shit, you're kidding me here. <laughs> the Irish had guns from like the the, the first rep talk of what is fourteen eighty seven. I think is the first reference that someone gets shot with a gun. And there's Battle in Octo fifteen oh four. Some there's a mention of a firearm, but it's actually someone gets his brains beat out with one. Um, <laughs> I know, <laughs> but it's only and and there's other times it turns up where the Irish and I think there's actually Lord deputies in Henry's time and they're complaining about the Irish have too many guns and I don't really like it and we would try and keep the guns out of Ireland, please. Um, but there's later on, there's a guy, Archbishop Lofted, Archbishop Lombard, um, who writes about it. And he says that, about, that the Irish have become proficient. And what he actually is so proficient in a short time that one could scarcely believe how skillful the Irish were. In fact, they had shooting competitions. He ever shot best, won a gun. That's the sort of thing he did. So that firepower guns mm-hmm. became the big thing. But O'Neill had seen other people do this before. Like when the Spanish landed in the West Coast, they went, oh, great Spanish captains. Let's all get your pike. Let's all get your guns. Train us to fight like you do, and we'll go and kick the English ass. Didn't work because the English had been fighting the Spanish like that in the Low Countries. They turned up and went, "Oh, pike and shot, great!" Yeah, we're not deal every, with that. Everyone got killed. So um, Tyrone went right to hell with that, and he changed it completely. What he did is rather than like English when they deployed, they had like uh, sort of two shot for each pike, or sometimes one shot. That's one guy with a firearm for each yeah. pike man. Tyrone said, "To hell with that." He had five to one, and with a vast with the, with the five being armed with firearms and none of this musket shite. No muskets are big, heavy guns. That's no use now. What he had was calibers, which is like half the weight of a musket and shorter range, but you didn't really need it and, and constrict the ground. Mm. And then he also had some similar things that the Spanish did. Like the English, when they were uh, coming up in fifteen ninety three, were deploying pike and shot and the cavalry, and that was it. Tyrone had pike. That one, the one pike, and then five shot. He also had targeteers, like swordsmen, and they acted almost like um, uh, close protection bodyguards for the shot. So that when they skirmished, and this is how it, it was all about skirmishing. And what they did is they uh, found out in skirmish order, and it wasn't just people hiding behind things. There's actually skirmishes were really quite ordered uh, during the 16th century. And what they did is used firepower to break down the English columns. Yeah. Um, and then whenever they started to break. Then they would send in the targeteers and the pike and the Irish horse to exploit those breaks, and then it would all fall apart. Um, so what he actually created was something really quite different. That he blended. No, they all talk about the military revolution and the firepower revolution, 
what Tyrone did is he took the strengths of that, you know, the, the utility of firepower, yeah, and melded it with Irish strengths, you no know, mobility, speed, uh, flexibility, and more importantly, because there were volunteers, there were there were paid men, they were um, highly motivated. Uh, one of the next things they always talk about is um, the skirmishing, and uh, it's always used as a pejorative. It kills me. They uh, they start to talk about uh, oh, but it was all skirmishing and it was loose order. It's like yeah, and um, the Duke of Alba, who was mm-hmm. no mean, that was, was was handy enough where, uh, on the battlefield uh, and the continent. He'd already mentioned that you could win any battle with ordinary troops, but you needed veterans to win skirmishes. And this was all Turin was doing. He was using four or five or six R skirmishes to break them down. And then whenever, whenever it went, then he jumped in. I suppose if you if you if you're going to knock skirmishes, they keep winning. <laughs> You know, what are you going to do? Sit there and complain that the other side's cheating because it uses different tactics? Seriously, they were complaining. They're like, "Oh, I like um, what was Norris? He was having a big moan." Um, this is Norris, John Norris, beloved of um, like you always hear everyone hears of Drake and Raleigh at the time. Norris was the big guy because he was in the captain in the Low Countries doing all the business. It sort of was, his reputation sort of dies and disappears. And I think that's partially because he he cops it here. He gets killed. He dies in Ireland. Um. So his reputation isn't quite as glorious as someone like Raleigh or Drake, even though Drake's is not pretty here. Don't start me on Drake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Raleigh got executed. Way for the <laughs> reputation. <laughs> but they love him anyway. Um, but yeah, they complain about, oh, but they won't just stand still and fight like we do. And it's like, yeah, but you are losing. Why are they going to fight like we do? <laughs> um, and they actually have that as a complaint. Is and that he, whole uh, thing about, you know, having a large number of skirmishes, do you think that's where this guerrilla myth kind of takes seed and just expands out from there? I think it is, but I possibly because of, I have chatted this before with other people and they said, well, maybe it's when they were writing the history that some of it came out around, you no know, uh, when you have the Irish War of Independence and they want sort of parallels with you know, like the, the, the flan columns there, they want some sort of continuity, which is all bollocks. If you look at actually continental Europe at the time, that's all that was. Apart from the sieges in the Low Countries, you have people writing back on this disordered, tumultuary warfare. There was a Ligur of Ash with the War on Cows. There was what? And they, they complained about, oh, but Tyrone didn't have any battles. Well, one, he did. Actually, you just don't know about them. Two, what was it? They're like 18 years in the French Wars of religion before they had a sizable battle. Hmm. Battles wasn't the thing. Alba hated battles. Alba said, why would you Why would you go to have fight someone in a battle when you can just wait them out or starve them out or just wait till their money runs out because a battle was a roll of the dice and Tyrone knew that as well. Yeah. So he, he only ever fought when he had to or he was going to make a point. The key with Tyrone is actually watching that's actually probably the problem with um, people that wrote the later history. They're sitting looking at the battles or lack of battles and looking where the, the shooting war is. It's what where the shooting war isn't is where you should be worried, because that's where Tyrone's making his political alliances, that's where he's making advances. You're still fighting some crappy wee skirmish outside Armagh and Ulster, and Tyrone's making advances little Kilkenny. Who's winning the war? You don't need to be shooting people to be winning the war, and Tyrone knows it. Well, they do say it's politics by another means, don't they? Well, so they say, but Jesus, like in the historiography, they're going, oh, but there was no battles. And like, yeah, but was it 1599? Tyrone could march, no, actually 1600, Tyrone marched from Ulster the Cork, which, if you don't know your geography, is right at the bottom end of Ireland, mm. without anyone going near him. Not once. Not a single English army went near him. And then he came back again. 
that's how much control he had of the country by then. And you're going to tell me, oh, but he didn't fight any battles. I think he didn't have to fight any battles because he was far... No, well, he didn't have to fight the battles. You're expecting these big stand-up, winner-take-all type battles. Well, not until 1601. I don't know how that happened. We'll get to that. Which actually brings me very neatly into my next question then, which may have been completely and utterly ruined by that answer. Um, So... Yeah, I've, I'm as guilty as the next man looking at that historiography. If there is a conflict, particularly if there's a nine-year conflict, I want to see battles. I'm English. This is what we do. So so what are some of the key battles in that conflict and the strategies of each side uh, and where where each side has a strength and has a weakness? Oh, right. you see, this battle, that's the thing. You say, you're English and this is what we do, but you only like hearing about the one you win. The ones where you get absolutely smoked, you forget about. Um, <laughs> one of the, one yeah. of the main ones. Bannock Burn? What the hell? Oh, no, no. I've got loads here coming. <laughs> I'm not even going to mention Fort of the Biscuits. That's another day. Um, no, the big one. For one thing, Tyrone runs a proxy war for two years. You just don't even know you're fighting him for the first two years. And so why do you think you're fighting some wee uh, regional war in Fermanagh? He's actually suppressing and assassinating and buying off every ally the uh, English have in Ulster. So by the time he jumps in with both feet in 1595, uh, the English suddenly realise that they don't have Ulster. And in fact, he's actually pressing into the Midlands and they didn't even know they were at war. But what when they find out they're really at war is um, at the Battle of Clontibret in um, 1595 when O'Neill besieges uh, Garrison in Monaghan. And so Lord Deputy Russell it is by this time, and he sends Marshal Bagnall, who's in charge of an army of 17 under, which includes loads of Brittany veterans. So they think, yeah, this will be fine. One of the Brittany veterans says to Russell, the Lord Deputy, um, we might need a bit more ammunition for this. And Russell is on record as saying, don't worry, lads, you only have to show the flag with this lot and you'll be fine. There's 17 under them. This should be not the problem. Ooh. Guess what might happen? So they turn up and they're marching to Monaghan and you can see the Irish are watching them. And then they have a few pot chats at them at a place called Crossdall. It's only a firefight, lasts about four hours. And they have about 20 guys killed. But they all get to Monaghan, fine. So the next day they decide, right, we're going to march back after relieving the garrison. We're going to march back uh, via a place called Clontibro, which is a different way. And it would be grand. So they start marching out. So I think they have some idea something's up because they march out in battle order. And then it all goes a bit tits up. They they find out that they've got O'Neill on his left and their right, and O'Neill's brother called Cormac Byron in the front, and they start shooting the hell out of them from both flanks. But unfortunately, unlike previous times when they all just shot at them and then they sent out the English cavalry, which would be like big tanks, the old Irish run away. The Irish were actually moving in formation supported by pikemen so that the yeah. English cavalry can't come out. They shoot the... English skirmishers back into the column so they, they've got no protection so the Irish can actually move up to within 30 yards and start blowing chunks out of them at close range gunfire. It takes them four hours to travel about 750 yards and they're wondering what's going to happen. The whole thing's starting to waver. It takes this lunatic charge by a, a, a guy called uh, Cornet Sedgrave who's a peelsman uh, he's basically Anglo-Irish, and he charged with 40 of the cavalry. They're light horse by English standards, but they're, they're mm. pretty dominant in the get once they get a free rein. He actually unhorses O'Neill. He actually ends up in physical contact 
fighting with O'Neill and they're both on the ground. That's how close they are. The Irish go, holy shit. And then one of O'Neill's uh, page men steps in and chops Sigurd's arm off, which gives O'Neill a bit of a breather, who takes out his dagger and stabs him through the ghoulies. And that's the end of Sigurd. But that gives it a pause for Bagnon mm. to start pushing his way through. But worse still, because there's been so much shooting, uh, O'Neill's men run out of gunpowder, and so the Amish uh, manage to escape. But one of the things he said, so they, they, all of a sudden they're like, hold on a second, there's something wrong. And one of the quotes was, there's a Lord Deputy who got a report back, and he said, their arms and weapons, their skill and practice, they're in far exceeding their wanted usage, having not only great force of pikes and muskets, but also many trained and experienced leaders, as appeared by their manner of coming to the fight, and their orderly carries their in. They were killed over. Norris starts going, Jesus, lads, everyone who's actually ever fought in Ireland, forget what you think, you know. This is something different. And he wasn't wrong, actually, because they start, they already start pushing further south and further south. And they always actually say this is a war in Ulster. That's a little bollocks. It started in Ulster. And even then, there was actually Femi Q. O'Byrne, who's actually acting like Tyrone's knife to the back of Dublin out of the Wicklow Hills. And it presses far, far, far into the south. Um, it gets to the point where. I'll, I'll jump over. There's a few more campaigns that the English are going to do it the old-fashioned way, just host up into the north, and they'll be done. Uh, and it doesn't work out. Uh, and so their big plan is they're going to send a large amphibious force to Derry in 1598. And it goes, right, we've got to draw these buggers out uh, and give them a good shoeing. So how are we going to do it? So they besiege the Blackwater Fort, which had been established by one of the later Lord Deputies, much against other people's advice. And so... They don't have a Lord Deputy this time, but they send Marshal Bagnall again. This is Marshal Bagnall. They say, right, we've got all our guns in one row, right? So we're going to send the biggest army we have. We're going to send 4,000 guys. We're going to send them with all the guns they want, you know, the big Saker and uh, some Falcons, and 300 of the Light Horse. This, they're still fully armoured, and this will do the business. This will do fine. It doesn't work out that way either. Mar- they, they say, again, they always say, he marches in the ambush. Personally, if you know they're there, you can see them, and they're standing waiting <laughs> on you. That's not a fucking ambush. That's yeah. that, that's <laughs> just walking straight into their guns. But that's what they do. But Tyrone has pre pre-ordered the battlefield. He's actually cut trenches to cut off, uh, so that when the English infantry climb over, they're cut off from support from the English horse, who just have to stand there and watch, as the first mm. regiment is literally butchered. Bagnell. Who just lifts, one of the classic stories is he lifts his visor to have a watch, to have a wee look to see what's happening. He gets shot in the head, dies. Uh, okay, is there a bit of bad luck here? I'll give you this. The English do have a bit of bad luck. Just when they decide, right, lads, we might have to pull out here, the story goes that someone goes back to replenish his gunpowders from the gunpowder store in the English central position. It sort of explodes. So you have a 400 pounds of gunpowder mm. <laughs> explode right in the middle <laughs> of the English position. It all just goes to hell. Uh, smoke goes up. The Irish go, lads, we're in. Charge in. And then they bloody run out of gunpowder again. So There's a definite supply problem here, they isn't did, there? But they are burning through prodigious quantities of it. Um, and so eventually, the English actually managed to um, withdraw, even though the, the, the commanding officer's dead. But they, out of the 4,000 that left, 2,000 get back. And they're in Armagh, and they have to ask for terms from O'Neill. Tyrone actually says, right, you have to leave all your guns, you have to leave all your supplies, you have to leave all your money uh, and, and all your munitions, and I'll let you just go back south. 
and so they have to march disarmed into the south. Mm. That's the Crown Army in Ireland. That's actually the the the, the high what the, the battle. It's actually still that's the biggest defeat ever handed to the English uh, by an Irish army. And uh, and how many people? How how many? numbers really had O'Neill put out against that 4,000? You're probably talking. He never really could put anything more than about five or 6,000 in the field at any one time. And again, it was all... There's actually a really nice illustration that shows it, and it shows you the the, the broad flanking, you know, the skirmishers all along the edges, just shooting mm. and shooting and shooting and waiting until the moment. And then he, the fact is he dissected the battlefield, so he creates a killing zone up at the front behind the trench. Now, it's all very well thought through. But again, he runs out of gunpowder. There's actually an English officer that writes back after it that survived, saying that if the Irish hadn't run out of gunpowder, if they'd came on, the, like before, no, there wouldn't have been anyone left to tell the story. So that's to the point, literally the most well-armed uh, army in, uh, that Elizabeth could put in the field got its ass handed to it in Armagh. <laughs> you can just pick out the pride in the tone of voice there, can't you? Is it because I'm O'Neill? I don't know. But maybe, maybe it is. Um, but there's tons of O'Neills. Um, maybe it's because I didn't serve in the battlefield, so I know the ground very well. Mm. I don't know. But it's... Well, I can't say anything, because I know how it ends. So, uh, Plus, we, we, well, also yeah. get, we also get Essex comes after that, which is hilarious. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So England versus Ireland does have the potential to be a bit one-sided. Um, you've already mentioned that Spain is involved, and in, uh, the King of Spain is in communication with with the Irish. Um, what other players or other backers are involved in this conflict? Well, for one thing, it's not half as one-sided as you think. No, it's we've just found out. Yeah, because, um, <laughs> Ireland's actually not as small because Ireland's about a quarter the size. Ireland has about one million, maybe one point two mm. million, whereas England at the time was about four million, five million. So the it's not like now where there's this tiny island is massive so the population difference is not not, not mm. massively so for another one the you have Spain Philip II um, and then later on Philip III which to be fair isn't a bad if you're gonna if you're gonna have a backer it'd be nice to have Spain to be fair you can't also blame Spain um Philip was a bit annoyed about the whole Armada thing and he's also a bit raging about um Elizabeth sticking her nose into the low countries they were sending troops in with the Norse and all the rest of that to help the Dutch mm-hmm. uh, in the revolt against Spain. So I think there was a part of basically, if uh, you're going to piss in my bath, I'm going to piss in yours. Uh, so he's going to, he doesn't never sense as much enough for the Irish to actually win, but he does have this proxy war of his own going on to keep Elizabeth distracted. 
but the one the one that really um and it works very well actually to tell you the truth because uh, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to spend a whole huge of money people always say oh but did uh spain provide all the money and all the guns not even close you know where most of it came from scotland james is james the sixth or uh, james the sixth that's where you um you got want to keep your eye on the vast amount of the arms and munitions that actually came in to uh keep Tyrone's armies going and we're talking thousands of weapons and tons upon tons of gunpowder because remember he's using gunpowder more prodigiously yep. than english and the shipments they're getting in is like six seven eight nine tons at a time Most he's not sending t- enough of it is he they're not saying it. well he's making it as well that's the thing though <laughs> they always he's actually got manufacturing his own gunpowder in dungan he is banning off everyone that will sell it at normally double the price and this is with, with gold as well. See all this sort of the Irish trading in commodities and, and skins and hides and all? That's all bollocks. They're, they're, they're trading with hard cash um, and they're getting banned off Scottish merchants. There's vast amounts were coming in through the North Coast in a shipment worth 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 pounds. There's mention of uh, Scottish ships in Ring Highway, which is a port in Strangford Lock uh, in County Down. There was one mention of 30 ships at anchor at one time. This constant flow coming through the merchants in Glasgow. And how is it coming through the merchants in Glasgow? Because James VI turned a blind eye. England, or Elizabeth um, has, has sent her diplomats north to, to James going, hello here. Uh, any chance you would stop all the guns and munitions and everything the Irish need flowing through Glasgow? And she threatens to cut off his annuity. I think she was sent them an annuity of something like £4,000 a year. And James is like, oh, no bother. Look, we'll, we'll stop that immediately. Doesn't do a thing. And then... <laughs> They say about, there's a, a provost in Glasgow, and it's oh, he's a great big papist. We need him changed, and he's just helping the Irish. And so James goes, right, no problem, we'll have that done, and then has him replaced with an even bigger papist. And there's nothing done. And it was, without a shadow of a doubt, O'Neill could not have kept this going without the acquiescence uh, of James, who he was on relatively good terms with, as, as later on in the war show. Because it's coming to, they've got munitions coming from... Uh, the Baltic as well. There's the whole the whole network coming through. So it's probably been under research to tell you the truth, but there's an amazing links between Scotland uh, and Tyrone. And then the final mm. one would be uh, Pope. Now, why he's involved in the Pope? It can't. People say, "Oh, it's a religious war." It's not. It's sort of a religious war, as in he uses religion when he needs it. He talks religion. Yeah. He talks religion when he's talking to the Spanish because Philip is big into his religion, and uh, so he sees see. When he's talking to him, it's it's a Catholic crusade. He never at the start of the war when he's trying to convince people to join him. Who, no Irish lords. He never mentions religion. This is all about patrimonies and their uh, noble privileges. Mm. One of the few things that Essex gets right, and I'm on record as being not a fan of Essex, but he's having a party uh, with Essex um, on the border, Ulster borderlands, and Essex is reportedly says to Tyrone, Tyrone, when you had everything all these benefits of your sovereign and all the rest of that, why did you revolt? And Tyrone allegedly said, oh, it was because of religion, though, for, for, for my uh, for the Catholic religion and and, and my the church and all that. And Essex apparently responded, you care for religion as much as my horse. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's probably the most accurate thing Essex ever said. No, no, he's, he's bang on. Uh, Tyrone was a, a, a religious chameleon. He, he married his third wife in a Church of Ireland ceremony. Uh, uh, so religion was only a tool for him. Uh, and possibly that's why Clement the Eighth was it Clement the Eighth 
eventually had the common board, but Clement wasn't exactly a big fan of Spanish either, uh, and the power of Philip. So the Pope comes on board a wee bit, but not enough for Tyrone. Tyrone, he, after he has some of his big victories, he makes uh, Tyrone the Catholic captain general in Ireland and sells a bull of indulgences to uh, so that anyone that joins Tyrone's side uh, will get uh, all their sins uh, nullified. But Tyrone didn't want that. What Tyrone, Tyrone's big problem was he needed to get the Old English. Now, the Old English were like the Anglo-Irish, the descendants of um, the Anglo-Normans, and they were all Catholic as well, and he needed to get them on board. And the only really, that's one of the reasons why he starts talking religion. He starts talking religion to them because they're co-religionists and Elizabeth and her officers represented uh, Protestantism. And so he was selling that we have to come together and fight for our religion to stop this. This, Yeah. It's it's a good tool if you're going to war with an excommunicated yeah, queen. It didn't bloody work very well. That's the problem. The, the old English decided that, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. They just they they weren't fans of Elizabeth. They certainly weren't fans of the new English coming in because they were all Protestant and they were sort of looked down on a wee bit. Um, but they also didn't really fancy the idea of having Tyrone as being first among equals, which really meant mm, a bit too much of Tyrone for my liking. So he couldn't really get them on board. What he was trying to get off the Pope was uh, a bull of excommunication that either you joined him or you were excommunicated, and mm. that might have had a lot stronger of uh, the strong arm the old English to come in on the side but that didn't work the old English weren't buying that for a bit uh, so Clement sort of won't he, he sort of hedges his bets but he doesn't get what he wants out of him the Pope uh, Spain and, and definitely Scotland the watch of Scots they, they were involved in this far more than giving credit so so how's the whole thing turn out then what's its outcome and and what was Ireland like in its aftermath? Oh, you're gonna make at the time. You're gonna make me do the bad bit. Okay. <laughs> did, did you see, that's when I was having a laugh about Yellow Ford and I have to do see, this. But... See, Kyle's cheering up here, <laughs> isn't now. You see, um, what happens is they finally cop on. They have the disaster of Essex. Now Essex is sent after Yellow Ford, and Essex, uh, the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux who the Queen sort of fancies or thinks he's quite the great lad. And, well, actually, no one thinks he's quite the great lad more than he does. <laughs> and he's in command of, like, the largest army in Ireland. He's at 16,000. The one had 16,000 before that. And he makes a total mess of it. Absolute hames. Uh, and ends up leaving his position in, in disgrace. Tyrone, they played him like a fiddle. Uh, and then, of course, he ends up executed after some abortive coup the next year. So, finally, Elizabeth... After how many years of getting it wrong, cops on. I suppose she had to, just the odds. She would find the right commander for the right job. She gets charged blunt, Lord Mountjoy, who mm-hmm. Essex was not a fan of at all to start, because he, he considered Mountjoy to be too bookish, too bookish a commander. <laughs> so Mountjoy comes over. Apparently, he, he, he didn't look the part of a soldier. Apparently, apparently he used to wear about six or seven coats because he felt the cold. But inst- what happens when he gets there? Uh, at the start of um, spring of 1600, he decides that he wasn't going to make the same mistake as the rest of the commanders. The rest of the ones sent were busy. He thought the Irish are just a bit shite and this should be easy enough. He decides to look at what's been going wrong. And he looks at what Tyrone has created to defeat them. And this is a great surprise uh, because there was still a belief that the Irish were busy 
apart from the fact that they were hammering uh, every, all the English troops sent over mm-hmm. for the last so many years. Um, there's like, because there's a letter sent out of um, Ireland by this guy comes over with Essex, and then he writes back and just he's like, "Was it in England they say they be what naked rogues, but we find them as good as men as those that are sent to us and better." There's, clearly, there's a there's a breakdown of what's happening here. But my my joy looks at them and goes, "Right, I'm gonna have to change this, or we're just gonna keep losing." And that's just one of the other big things that bugs me. Some of the ones actually write that Tyrone copied the English forms of warfare to create his hybrid, this new force. That is total art. In fact, it's the other way around. What Mountjoy does is he copies Tyrone's reforms. He gets rid of the muskets. He thins down the amount of pikemen. What he uh, gets rid of the armor. He basically tries to make his mm. troops as mobile as Tyrone's. Doesn't quite manage it, but he does make it. He does get it to the point where it says, "See if the Spanish actually land here, we'll run rings around them because we're so fast. Uh, we'll have the, the the exact line they said is we'll have the advantage over the Spanish as the Irish have over us. That's the sort of changes in mobility. He copied Tyrone's mm. reforms, and then he also sees what Tyrone was doing. Now Tyrone actually had managed to create not an army that was tactically good, but he operationally changed what they did. He could have things happen in one county or in one region. That would influence what would happen in another. He had a, operational changes that the English just couldn't get their head around. But Mountjoy saw that Tyrone had an operational plan far and beyond just tactics. So his first move wasn't yeah. into Ulster. He decided to cut through the Midlands and cut off the supply lines from the north into the south into Munster. And what that did, that cut off the supply of gunpowder. And without the gun part, so they ran out of it even they more. Ran out of it even more, Jesus, yes. You just can't wait to get that bad bit. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, troops that are trained to use gunpowder are forced to use the the things that they weren't trained to use. They were forced to use the pike, but the pike wasn't trained to act. Irish pike weren't trained to act uh, offensively. They were only meant to be defensive in the last line of so Yeah. All of a sudden, where you see reports coming back, it used to be at the all start of the war. All the, all the English wounded were all shot. Then, when they start to win, all the English wounded are all got pike wounds because the gunpowder's running out, and the Irish are forced to use a pike in a way they weren't. Just, they're light pike. They're what the Spanish called pica seca, and they use them in close order. And everyone knows it's in every single book of pike at the time. It says close order pike will wipe out lightest order pike, and that's exactly what happens. They keep losing and losing and losing and losing. And so we managed to, as the Irish lose, you get uh, Irish lords defecting over to the English because no one wants to be on the losing side. Yeah. That that was the whole way of power at the time. That's that was one reason why um, Tyrone was so powerful. That the power was actually predicated on military ability. And everyone went, "Jesus, he really kicks ass." I'm on his side. But as Mountjoy turns up and starts to turn the tide and start to make advances and start to reform the whole army into what something looked more like an Irish army than the Irish army declaring like an English army, then he starts to make progress. It gets a bit of interference, actually. There's letters coming out. They're not doing it quick enough, and there's letters coming from England going, my joy, you really need to get into the north. And he said, will you give me a break? And they went, no, you need to get into the north. And he goes, okay. So he sends his troops into the north in August, or September, October 1600, and then more he passed and get the shit kicked out of them. That, that, did I say that? I, I, I must have smiled when I said that. Absolutely gets battered. Um, withdraws and then only gets through the pass after O'Neill withdraws. Uh, a couple of days later, then he gets back up. His army's in rags. I think he loses up to 50% of it, all the, the, the dysentery or desertion or Irish gunfire. Then has to escape uh, in November 1600 by Carniford and comes out and goes, well, there you go, invaded us, the job done. 
he wasn't fooling anyone, so he gets reinforcements in. Um, but then he starts to actually sequentially push his way into Ulster uh, in 1601. What he also manages to do, and they all knew that what this was key, was he actually managed to land a massive force in Derry, in the north, right on the north coast, making O'Neill pull behind him. So to contain that, he has to withdraw his troops out of the south. No, they're the other lords that he's supporting. Mm-hmm. Now, without them, he they tend not to do what they're told, unless he has people making sure they do what they're told. So O'Neill starts to have... Forcing to look behind him because of this garrison in Derry under a guy called Docker. There's 4,000 troops landed in Derry. It's a massive landing force. It doesn't do anything apart from acts like a bridle on Tyrone's southward operations. But that big force also starts to accrue Irish defectors. Like uh, there's uh, a guy, O'Doherty, and then there's Nalgar O'Donnell, who'll all defect. And then they see Docker say himself, that's the English commander, that he couldn't do anything without Irish help, without the Irish guides to, um, to help him. Otherwise, his army was just blind. And it was it was shrinking at a shocking rate. But Mountjoy's starting to make progress, and he's starting to push in the Ulster by 1601. He's also starting to get a bit of the old ultraviolence on. He decides, right, you know what we need? A good bit of massacring. <laughs> so he's got this guy, Arthur Chichester, who's uh, operating out of um, Carrickfergus. Now, Arthur is an absolute charmer. Okay, he's possibly... He's a bit annoyed because his brother got a he had run the garrison in fifteen ninety seven, got hammered by the Scots and the Irish at a place called Aldfric, and got his head chopped off for his troubles. That was not, see, listen, when we were saying about the, the battles that he's losing, this is another one, absolutely got trenched. He got his head cut off and sent to Dungannon in a barrel, where apparently Dung uh, Tyrone's men kicked it around like a football. So Arthur was a bit raging. But Arthur was a man who loved a bit of the old ultraviolence. And he was. This is the guy who's on quote as saying, "A million swords will do them no harm as much as one winter's famine," and complained that they couldn't kill enough. He says, "We just can't kill enough of these Irish." And he was the by sixteen oh one. He's actually raiding across the Loch Ness. It was his large central lock in in Ulster, mm-hmm. uh, and writing quite proudly to the Queen about how they kill everything they meet: men, women, children, animals, absolutely everything. And this is what, this is the plan. So they're getting penned in, and Tyrone is going, where are the Spanish? That'll be just great, thanks. He's actually penned in in Ulster. Mountjoy tries to actually penetrate into Tyrone in, across the River Blackwater in the summer of 1601. Gets stopped by Tyrone in open country. See, all this, uh, oh, sorry, you only fight in bogs and fight on hills, or we really can't see you. <laughs> Comes out on open ground and stands toe-to-toe with Mountjoy's full army on the Blackwater. Stops them right there, and then Mountjoy pulls back. But then the Spanish arrive in September uh, 1601 uh, under Delegalia, about 4,000 Spaniards, and conceal. And then they stop at conceal and wait for something to happen. Mountjoy, of course, moves very quickly and surrounds the Spanish at conceal. He can't take them. He's not strong enough to storm conceal, even though it's an old medieval town. And the Spanish actually reinforce its walls with the earth ramparts and what have you. And then they go, right, Tyrone, where are you? Apart from the fact that Conceal is 300 miles to the bloody south, sorry, about 250 miles to the south in winter, uh, and they're looking Tyrone to turn up and join up with them, which isn't overly helpful. And you'd think anyone just go, do you know, I think I'll not bother. Mm. But Tyrone has already given his word to the Spanish, and he knows that if he leaves these Spaniards out to, hide, to dry, there won't be any more Spanish help. So he's forced in winter, 
to gather an army, him and O'Donnell, and they have to leave about a third of their army behind to keep Dockra and Chichester at bay, and decide to march south. Now, Tyrone tries his best to get uh, Mountjoy to at least thin the troops. He burns a bit around the pale to try and draw him out, but uh, Mountjoy isn't for having it. He's going, no, where it's in conceal. Actually, Mountjoy is quoted as saying, if we win here, all is ours. If he wins here, all is his. He was betting it all on conceal. Yeah. Most people say, well, why didn't he wait? Good bloody question. Actually, we can't answer this. There's not enough information. Everything says Tyrone should have waited. Every ounce of experience that he has is saying, just wait them out. The English are dying in it. Uh, hands up, who knows what happens in winter sieges. Everyone on the outside dies horribly. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Typhus, rain, plus it's also a really, really, really bad winter. Uh, the whole theory is it was meant to be a, um, a volcanic dust veil or some volcano erupted in Peru, and for that whole couple of years, it was just appalling winters. Conceal was right in the middle of that. There's mentioned about dozens of them freezing to death in the trenches around Conceal, and you're going, Anyone with a conscious sense would go, you know, lads, you just crack on there. I'll, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Because we're done by the buckaloo. But that's not what happens. God, this is the off-white kicking to this bit. It gets to December, and Tyrone, uh, there's more Spanish have landed, and they're in contact with Delaguila in town, and they come up with this plan. Part of Some people say it was under pressure from Spanish captains. To tell you the truth, me and some of the preeminent people on this period, like Tiffany Harm Morgan and a guy called Damien Sheaves, have argued this out on the battlefield about why they've uh, what happened. But they come up with this plan that they're going to break through the English lines and join up with the. They're going to force the English on one side, and then Delegate will come out of the town on the other side. They'll catch my joy in the middle, uh, and they'll, they'll crush my joy, and then that's it. Ireland for all home for tea and scones. But that's not what happens. On Christmas Eve, it would have to be Christmas Eve as well. It almost makes it photogenic. On Christmas Eve, Tyrone marches out with O'Donnell. And the formation they use is just shit. They've never, ever deployed like this. They have deployed in Battaglia. No, over 500, 600 men. No, the, the Pike Square is surrounded by shot. They have deployed in that. Hmm. They come out in these great big Tercio-style blocks of 2,000 a blob. Or two and a half thousand men. They've never fought like this. Never yeah. tried to fight like this. Never trained like this. There's one guy, Jesus, um, in 1601, there's a, 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 a Scottish merchant. He's also a spy for the Cecils. Men, sees Tyrone's men training in Dungan. And he sees these Spanish captains training them. And he sees them all marching in light order, you know, in loose order pike. And go, well, why, did you, why didn't you march in close order and you know, fight like that? And so, because what's the point? It doesn't suit our way of warfare. You can't move fast. You want to be slow like the English, I do that, but it's all about speed and flexibility. But that's that's the way they're trained, but not like this, not these great two and a half thousand men blobs. And what's worse, the Irish cavalry hadn't been reformed in the same way. The Irish cavalry uh, would have been made up of nobles, the, the elite, and they were harder to reform. than The, what the, the amazing thing, the, the way Tyrone reformed his army, he did it in a tiny amount of time. Ten years it took to reform it, less than ten, to totally revolutionise it. Jesus, they're still English, turning up with longbows. One thing is, don't bring a longbow to a gunfight. I know that'll annoy some people who love longbows, but don't. And I don't know, eight arrows a minute over 250 yards versus two rounds a minute over, what, 30? 
Have you seen? Have you ever seen cavitation of a bullet compared to the wee pokey holes yes, in an arrow? Yeah. <laughs> Tyrone moves out with these large blocks uh, and an advanced guard. The English engage him with only a regiment of about a thousand men, possibly using linear tactics uh, learned in the D- Dutch wars. But that's besides the point. He doesn't see the Spanish come out. The Spanish don't see him. So when O'Neill decides to withdraw back to a safer spot behind a river and the protection of a bog. The English cavalry find a way around the right and attack the Irish from the right. Now, initially they're held off, but then they make a second charge and the Irish cavalry withdraw. Because, again, they're mostly used for scouting. They're not not the heavy cavalry. They're mostly not armoured. But the way they withdraw is they withdraw straight through the bloody Irish formation, disrupting it. It falls into disorder. The English cavalry go, right, lads, in we go. Charge straight into it, and the only thing more contagious than COVID apparently is panic. Yeah, and it just falls apart, just collapses. And the English cavalry, they said, they said that the only thing stopped the English cavalry killing them all is that the horses were in such bad shape they couldn't charge after them. They lose about a thousand people, a thousand to twelve hundred of the most veteran troops there and then. O'Donnell and the other one doesn't even get engaged. He 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 managed to decamp almost entirely, but they can't pursue them. But O'Neill. A shot as bolt. The one thing you don't do is you don't refight a battle with troops that have already been defeated. So the next day, he decides, right, we're going to go back north. This, this, we've shot our bolt. In the retreat north, they lose about another two thousand men. As everyone decides, Jesus, O'Neill can be beat. They decided to defect the English. He started, he could start to get attacked by people who waved at him on the way down, attack him on the way back. So he loses maybe two and a half thousand men. But his cachet is 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 aura of invincibility is, is, is done and in a society that it actually predicates loyalty on perceptions of power that's yeah. it the Spanish decide, they fight for a wee bit longer but they decide right they've had enough and they surrender on terms uh, and Mountjoy is more than happy to send them back home in boats and he gets criticised for that he, <laughs> some people in England actually says oh you avoided the Spanish out, Jesus Christ you can't do right for wrong in this place then you get the really worst part of the war, you thought it was bad now then they get into the whole scorched earth, bit of the old ultraviolence. Yeah. Once they've got the Irish on the back foot, what what Mountjoy does it for is he says he wants to create a situation where someone will betray Tyrone, but it doesn't happen. Also, he what he did the, Chichester now. Chichester is fully let off the rein. He will kill everything and anything, and has has. Graphic details of the activities he was up to, shocking stuff. Anyone ever wondered why the um, the Elizabethan period is isn't thought of fondly in Ireland? Should read um, Chichester's behaviour in Ulster. But there's also a agricultural collapse. So many years of war yeah. has led to just a breakdown in agriculture. When when Mountjoy finally crosses the Blackwater and into Dungannon, Tyrone's capital, Tyrone legs it uh, um, and pulls out into the forest of Glencon to the north. When Mountjoy gets there, he sees that the fields are already eaten and destroyed. Before he even get them, he was going to destroy them. But it was already done. there was already an agricultural collapse going. Then you get this famine, yeah, um, which devastates the north. And then it spreads south so that by uh, 1603, 1604, actually there's famine across the entire country. But there's an estimate, uh, Tyrone estimates, in, in just in his territory, there's up to 60,000 people were killed. So it was actually after Conceal, there's more people die after 1601 that died in all the years previous from 1593 that's how awful this phase is and there's uh 
details of cannibalism. It's just it's grim stuff. So thinking more long term, what is the legacy of this conflict? Oh, we're living in it. What happens after this? Tyrone surrenders at Melophon, gets essentially off with no harm, no foul, keeps his lands. By it, by the summer, it's actually off hunting with James the first, James the sixth, who's now James the sixth and first after Elizabeth dies. So he's off in hunting parks, having a great time. But there's a lot who don't like the fact that he's got off so scot free. So there's uh, uh, conspiracies to actually find him a traitor uh, after the the settlement, and eventually in 1607. You have the flight of the Earls, where him and a load of the other Ice Lords actually decamp. The they meant to go to Spain, but they end up in Rome. So that leaves all this land, the sheeted land, open for plantation, and that's where you get the basis of the Ulster plantations, where mm. uh, colonists are brought from Scotland and England to take, you no, know, to occupy those lands, um, or actually take control of them, should we say, because there's still a lot of Irish there. But again, on the basis of the plantation, then you see a change in the whole population demographic. That what was once the most Irish part of Ireland, which is Ulster, then becomes the most changes in ethnic characteristics and religion, where you have Protestant, English, and Scots, and that for very obvious resonates right to this very day, yeah. where you have uh, the troubles and just only the uh, the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. All this comes from way back here. Well. Thank you very much, Jim, because that's that has made me want to go digging around some more in Irish history. That was that was absolutely fascinating, and it was good to get some kind of island before the Battle of the Boyne, which is it, it's the big one that everybody bangs on about. Like I oh, said yeah. at the start, I'm I wasn't really aware of that, but but thank you very much. Have you had fun? I have had fun. I, I think I kept the swearing to a minimum. Maybe maybe that's... one could <laughs> might listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks a bunch. If you'd like to know more about Jim's work, then uh, you can start by reading his book on the Nine Years' War, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And you can visit the Northern Ireland War Memorial website, which we'll also have a link for. And you can follow him on Twitter at NeilOJim1972. But once again, Jim, thank you very much for coming to History Rage. Been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join our own angry mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.